Malcolm Honline coming up next. He's executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Many anxious listeners want to hear what he has to say about what is happening in Israel and the Jewish world. That is next right here at JM in the AM. But no one should question Israel's determination to defend itself against those who seek our destruction. For in every generation, there were those who rose up to destroy our people. In antiquity, we faced destruction from the ancient empires of Babylon and Rome. In the Middle Ages, we faced inquisition and expulsion. And in modern times, we face pogroms and the Holocaust. Yet the Jewish people persevered. And now another regime has arisen, swearing to destroy Israel. That regime would be wise to consider this. I stand here today representing Israel, a country 67 years young, but the nation state of a people nearly 4,000 years old. Yet the empires of Babylon and Rome are not represented in this Hall of Nations. Neither is the thousand-year Reich. Those seemingly invincible empires are long gone. But Israel lives. The people of Israel live. Am Israel chai. Malcolm Holmline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us for the weekly update on this Friday morning. Mr. Holmline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. It's good to be back and uh, to be with you. Appreciate that. We need you to be a drop louder, and I thank you. Um, that, of course, the words of the Prime Minister of Israel in the General Assembly at the United Nations Thursday, Cholamoid. We didn't get an opportunity to speak about his speech last week. I do want to remind our listeners, by the way, podcast of this conversation in its entirety uh, available within minutes of its conclusion in the um, archives sec- in the weekly update section of the archives section of the NSN app. Keep that in mind. You could hear everything in its entirety uh, when you go to that, um, uh, to that app just minutes after this conversation ends. That, that paragraph, by the way, continued... Uh, and ended with the words, so here's my message to the rulers of Iran. Your plan to destroy Israel will fail. Malcolm, I think you have to admit that this is another week that proves that the enemy of Israel still has not gotten the message. Well, the enemies of Israel and of the Jewish people haven't gotten the message. They haven't for a couple thousand years, so there's no reason to suspect that they will all of a sudden be enlightened and... uh, But the answer has always been the same. Internally, there has to be Jewish unity. There has to be uh, an understanding that whatever differences, the enemies target all Jews. And and second, that the government has to act with resolve, that the only message, the only method that can be successful is one that is based on strength and determination, and that tolerating even... A uh, small, a lower level of um, violence is detrimental, and, and this is a cancer that metastasizes, that when you let it go in one area, like Hiroth's 18, the Mount of Olives, or against the Light Railroad, or others, and there isn't decisive action which involves holding 
the parents of minors uh, accountable, which means putting people in jail for for rock throwing and stone throwing, as it's called in the media. But those who have witnessed it can, will tell you that these are boulders and cinder blocks and have proven deadly in the past and uh, injured many. And they are being used now, and, and it's really because they Hashem. It's just yeah. a miracle. So why others were not hurt? So why doesn't the government of Israel get this message? <laughs> why is it so clear to people like you and myself and many others? And we and by the way, we had Josh Haston on yesterday. He described how a minimal show of strength on his part saved his life from an Arab mob the other day. Why is it that the government of Israel doesn't get this message? Look, I think the government does, and I think Netanyahu and uh, the government of Israel operate in, in, and want, obviously, to put an end to the violence. There are restrictions. There are realities that, uh, that compromise or dictate what they can uh, often do. But I think in the, in the case of uh, the Harabayit, they have sent the wrong messages. In the case of Marazetim, they have made efforts. They put up cameras. They put up some fences. They did take preliminary steps. But at the same time, it seems the police have orders that are very restrictive of their ability to respond. On the first part, it sounds like you agree that it's absurd that Jewish members of Knesset can't go to Harabayat. I think it's absurd that Arab members can go and Jewish members can't. If you want to ban everybody, then ban everybody and, and seal it off. If you, if you make a discriminatory policy, you are just reinforcing what Abbas has been doing. And you know this is an issue that I've spoken about for a long time and I feel very strongly about, is Abbas says the Temple Mount is ours, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is ours, so it's not just against Jewish heritage and history, it's against Christianity as well. He continues to incite about the Harabai talking about Al-Aqsa being under siege, because he knows there's nothing that incites more to this. This is the third holiest place for Muslims. It is the holiest place for Jews. It is sacred to, to Christians and others. And the, the message that is sent, if we don't show the same determination that they do, their efforts to uproot our connection, and we have to demonstrate it. And, and, and one of the victories they get is when people don't go to the old city, when people don't go to the Kotel, when people don't visit Israel, this is a victory for the terrorists. Yeah. I understand all the reasons, and I don't think people should you know, put themselves in a situation of sakana, in a situation of danger. They have to listen to what the police say, that people should not take the law into their own hands. But on the other hand, there has to be the freedom. And I spoke to policemen who told me that they were frustrated at times, and uh, also lack of manpower. It's, it's a huge burden for the state of Israel, I understand but there has to be a clear message. And when the international community gives them license, when Abbas can give a speech as he did at the, at the UN, and the international community applauds and welcomes and continues to, to uh, uh, abide his, his incitement, and it is incitement on his part, he knows the consequences of saying that, that it's under siege when he calls on people to demonstrate, and he doesn't back off of it. Now they're saying, oh, he's really cooperating and, and he's, you know, trying to calm things down, when at the same time his speech is in sight, his honoring of terrorists, his continuing to fund the families of, quote, martyrs and those who killed Jews is not acceptable. Yeah. I, I know this, it's wrong of me to divert this way, but, but give me just a minute on this. I know we have so much news to cover, but 
And, and not that, God forbid, I would ever suggest that anybody's life is more valuable than others, but we, we know about the murder of the Henkins and the orphans they leave behind. We know about Rabbi Lavie and, and his greatness and, and many others that were lost in, or, or are injured over the, la- over the last few days. Why does it seem that the enemy always takes our best? And again, not to compare a, a Jewish life to another, but why does it always seem, Malcolm, that the price is always so high in these episodes? It's a question I certainly can't answer. And uh, the, I think that if you look at the panoply of people who have been stabbed, who have been targeted, there were more attacks today, uh, a much lower level, uh, thank God, and, and from the peak of earlier this week when there were perhaps 100 incidents, uh, many of them not resulting in severe casualties. And, and when people, the reports, when they read them and it says that they're lightly wounded, yeah. By our standards and by the recipient standards, it is severely wounded. In some cases, as today, uh, the young boy, who was, the young man who was stabbed, uh, didn't even know it. Right. It was only afterwards, when he was walking around and said he had pain in his shoulder, that right. he realized that he had, been, he had multiple stab wounds. So not all of them are, are, are of the same level. But when you look at, at who are the young people who are defending Israel, I was on the Syrian border last Thursday. At literally seeing the terrorists across the border, and the commander of the base was Josh Hasten's cousin. <laughs> and, you know, when he introduced himself, and, he, and, and of course I knew his grandfather and, and the members of his family and Josh, uh, and you see the finest people you can imagine, many of them lone soldiers, some of them from one young woman from, from Brooklyn, others from, from other parts of the country, from the United States, as well as, of course, all over Israel. And every one of them is just such a stellar individual and so committed. And, and they sit up there in this isolated outpost. They never complain. They, they yearn to continue. They, they get uh, rotated every three months, and they complain because they feel how important what they're doing on the border where they can literally look down and see the uh, Syrian rebels or Hezbollah or uh, al-Nusra walking around, and they often test the border. You know, they walk up to the border to see if the Israelis react, and they wave at the security cameras to show that they know exactly where everything is. But these individuals, and certainly the Hankins and, and those who were killed in Yerushalayim, and are, are all exemplary individuals. But that is the people of Israel. Yeah, that is the people. Yeah, it's true. The truth is they're all the best. That's the whole point. You're 100% right. By the way, not to divert again, but now I'm curious. So, and excuse the, you know, the naivete behind this question. You were on the Syrian border. How close were you to the nearest ISIS installation? Um, 100 yards. Literally, it's that close Literally. to Israel. You could see them. We, we watched them walking around through the binoculars. You could see their faces. You saw the installations. They showed us where they build the infrastructure. And uh, we saw a Russian tank that they had captured. So literally, you look right down the mountain at them. And there it is. Uh, On the issue of incitement or the issue of who we are dealing with, uh, there are so many examples we can give. And you've, of course, already uh, described the uh, speech by Abbas at the UN, but but we just have to remind ourselves who we're dealing with. This Ayal Golan song, which is one of the most beautiful songs ever, Misha Mamin, was turned this week into a Hamas-sponsored parody in Hebrew, describing both audio and visually through videos the murder of Israeli soldiers and the bombing of Israeli tanks. 
This is who we are dealing with on the other side of this peace issue. They welcome death, and they don't care whether they sacrifice their own youth or whether they, sac- uh, they certainly want to sacrifice uh, Jews. Um, and they, they hide behind the international community. The world is silent in the face of the attacks on Jews. Most of them don't even get reported. If you would look at the Times, you look at other papers, you don't know. You only know the I- Israeli response. <coughs> and uh, I spent some time at the UN this week. It, it, is, uh, it is unbelievable still sometimes to, to comprehend the indifference when it comes to Jewish blood. And Abbas, who is responsible for setting precondition after preconditions for negotiations, and everybody says Israel has to do more, Israel has to give more, Israel has to respond. There have been 5,000 rock attacks or stonings in 2015 and, and in Jerusalem. You know, there were 300 firebombs thrown. This is, this is uh, 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 it would not be tolerated in any society. And, and, uh, and he, Abbas himself, and the leadership there, are responsible. And we put out a statement this week, and it got a, a lot of reaction, because I said if they don't do it, the United States has to send a message. We cut funding. We have to send, say there is a consequence for, for the actions that, that, are, um, that are taking place. Now we see Al-Aqsa brigades the Martyrs Brigade people involved again, that is Fatah. We see Hamas cells caught responsible for the murder of, of several people. And, you know, this is, uh, this is not an intifada yet. They, they will use the terminology. They will appeal to it because they want it to be widespread, but it is not. This is not an organized, uh, centrally directed. It's not a boss giving orders to, to, to people to engage in these acts of But why are there so many reports that indicate that, that he in fact is giving orders? And you'd think through social media it really is an intifada at this point with the organized effort that's behind it. What I said is he doesn't give specific orders to individuals to carry out these acts. These are more spontaneous from all of the security people that I've spoken to. Uh, made it very clear these are you know individuals engaging right. in these acts. Right. Some of them may be inspired by Hamas, and that's why I pointed out the different groups that are involved but it, it, he is responsible in the sense that he honors the martyrs. He, he uh, uh, pays funds to them and to their families. He's, he, uh, even those who are caught in prison receive a, a monthly pension while they're in prison for murdering uh, Jews or attacking uh, Jews or Israelis. The, um, so the, the idea that this is an intifada is meant to scare the Israelis. It's meant to kill tourism. It's meant to hurt Israeli business and Israel's image and the idea that this is a popular uprising. Most Palestinians do not want to see violence. They don't want to see a return to the Intifada. Yet when they stand by and you see them drinking Cokes and spitting on the woman who was wounded and refusing to aid and abet them. Yeah, a 22-year-old girl who's a mother and stabbed 11 times. Right. Unbelievable. And and, and, and now the Israeli government is acting against those uh, Arab sh- shopkeepers and others who stood by because there is a law. Right. It's called it. Don't stand by idly. It's, the, I guess, a good Samaritan law, what yeah. we would call it, for those uh, who engage. So the image that is created is that this is across the country and it's widespread. And the truth is that I went to the Kotel during these periods. You, you don't see it unless you're actually on the site of an incident. But what you did see now in the, in the couple, last couple of days is a growing level of tension. And any incident, any suspected incident, evokes a reaction, overreaction, 
Yeah. In fact, people when nothing really, uh, in, in, in times when nothing occurred or places where nothing really occurred, but people are so sensitive uh, to it today. Yeah. And they and they look at what Iran threatens to do by arming people in the West Bank. We know that they're giving more money to Hamas and Hezbollah now since the deal was signed. We know that this escalates the dangers across the borders. So Israel can't have this happening within its borders and at the same time face the dangers across its borders. Uh, it's Amer- bear with me and the Prime Minister for a second. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard and listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope. Rockland County at 91.9 in the FM Dial, broadcasting live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey, around the world on the web, jmtheam.org. Reminder, this conversation available in its entirety minutes after its conclusion in the um, archive section of the weekly update section of the NSN app. Keep that in mind. You can catch up on everything you may have missed at the beginning of this conversation. Last month, Khamenei once again made his genocidal intentions clear. Before uh, Iran's top clerical body, the Assembly of Experts, he spoke about Israel, home to over six billion Jews. He pledged, quote, there will be no Israel in 25 years. End quote. Seventy years after the murder of six million Jews, Iran's rulers promised to destroy my country, murder my people, and the response from this body, the response from nearly every one of the governments represented here, has been absolutely nothing. Utter silence. Deafening silence. And then, of course, the Prime Minister uh, continued that deafening silence for a period of time. Um, I I commented how the best soundbite of the speech, ironically, had no sound. And, uh, you know, on paper, I wouldn't have thought it was a great tactic, but I think, I, I think it, all of us would have to agree that it was very effective. Wouldn't you agree, Malcolm? It certainly got people's attention. So I've spoken to ambassadors, including some Arab ambassadors, who told me they thought the speech was very powerful and the moment of silence effective. But the fact is that it got little coverage. It, 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 you know, he, he's, uh, it, it's as if he is in an echo chamber where his voice resonates uh, within, with a few of the people, but largely just passes through, and that's the end of it. And uh, I think it's regrettable that the, that the prime minister of Israel has to come before the international body, and rather than talking about constructive uh, steps, is forced to, to address them in the way that he did. And essentially, I mean, it's a responsibility that he has to tell the truth and to tell it like it is. And I think... Many of the ambassadors there appreciated what he had to say, and I can tell you they told me that it was very effective. But in advance, you never would have thought that he would have used Thursday's speech to, to, to spend all that time on the Iran deal, right? You would have thought maybe a, a part of it or a small percentage of it, but the majority of it was about the Iran deal. Because that's the body that 
will be in charge, especially the Security Council, with enforcing the resolution, which will be, I, as I said all along, I think the governing docu- document, not the the deal necessarily, not the JPOA, but I think the UN Security Council resolution, which Iran already has said they will not uh, honor. And you see that Khamenei says he's going to ban all talks and negotiations with the U.S., contradicting what uh, Rouhani had said in his, uh, again, one of his... Um, sweet-talking statements about uh, opening up opportunities. They're giving more money to Hamas and Hezbollah. They are advancing their goals to, to, to be in a position to dominate the region and certainly to threaten the, the state of Israel. And they are building terror cells, including near the Golan. They want to be in a position to be able to create problems along the Syrian border, just as Hezbollah can, and because of Iran on the Lebanese border and Hamas. Uh, on the Gaza border, and they talk about arming the West Bank. So he is he is simply laying out to the people an understanding. And if it's a, a necessary for the people to understand whatever action Israel decides to take, whether against Iran or whether against the forces of terrorism, he has a responsibility to lay out the predicates so that they will understand uh, why Israel has to act as it does. Was there a direct... will not know from the media what the reality is. Was there a directive from Washington that there be no U.S. representation at the speech? No. And I think that there's that this is a diversion of, and people I know um, discuss this a great deal. I have looked into it. I've spoken to the people involved. And uh, the fact is that the U.S. ambassador did not attend any speeches and did plan to attend the, ambassador's spe- uh, the prime minister's speech. Uh, Kerry did not attend any of the other speeches. There were always members of the delegation, U.S. delegation, in attendance at the session, as there were when Netanyahu spoke. There was an emergency National Security Council meeting. It was because of a particular development, and... Um, let, me a- let me ask the question... Let me ask the question differently. Last time he spoke at the U.N. was the U.S. representation. I, I think that the... Yes, I'm sure the ambassador was there. I mean... The one thing that, that Ambassador Powers has done is to be present for Netanyahu's speech. And I, again, spoke to her yesterday about it. We, we have been pressing this issue. And if there was no walkout. That story right. is, uh, is untrue that they were there. They weren't there, and they didn't walk out. And uh, Kerry wasn't even in New York at the time. Right. It yeah. was in New York uh, for part of the time. But they were both called to this right. security council yeah. meeting because of the development that happened. Right. Yeah, I mean, I really shouldn't belabor the point. It's not a good use of time, but I, I just, it, with the Dennis Ross article in the book and, and everything, it, it, do you think it really does come, and you've described a million times in the last seven years how close the relationship is, especially with intelligence and security between Israel and the United States at all levels. Is it probably just some really serious personality conflict between the president and the prime minister, and it really is that on a personal level, and they're able to keep whatever animosity there is outside of the real U.S.-Israel relationship, would that be the most responsible way of portraying it? I don't know that it's the most accurate way to portray it. I, I do think that there is, obviously, tension in the personal relationship. I think the November 9th meeting will be critical in this regard. Oh, we keep forgetting about that, right? That's that's right around the corner. And, right? uh, and I think that the Prime Minister was leaving open... Uh, the opportunity for this to be a positive thing. And Israel is coming with some very important requests. One of them uh, that they will be negotiating is the extension, the next 10-year deal, which provides Israel with over $3 billion a year in, in military assistance, and they're asking for significant increases. They're asking for other things to, to defend Israel. It is true the 
military and, and, and uh, security cooperation has been very good. That is not to say that it is everything has been good and that at all levels the relationship uh, is what we want it to be and, and that cooperation is at the level that it should be. But in that those areas, it certainly has been um, sustained uh, uh, over this time. What I do think the problem with the U.N. session was the optics. It was the question of how did the other countries read it. When they saw the absence, did they look for Samantha Powers? Was she there when C.C. Uh, of Egypt spoke or other leaders spoke? No, nobody bothers to check. But when Israel's there and because of the right. tensions that exist, everybody focuses attention on it and everybody looks who's sitting there, who's, who was to the right, who was to the left, what level were, were they. Right. Uh, I, so That's I do true. not believe that that was a deliberate thing. I do believe that the optics uh, that it created meaning the impression that, that uh, resulted from it is, is of concern. And then some of the other statements, some of the equating of, of the firefighters and the arsonists, the people defending citizens of Israel and those who are carrying out terrorists, saying both sides have to react. There have been condemnations of the acts of violence by the administration, but we have to see, and, and coming in the aftermath, of course, of the debate of the last few months, Man. So we want to see the U.S.-Israel relationship back on solid footing. We want to see them cooperating with the enemies that they have in the region and developments in Syria, Russia's role, other things, put them both on the same side and reinforce the commonality of interests. But, one, I don't believe you whitewash it. I think you have to face the reality, and there has to be a change in the tone. There, both sides have to come together on November 9th, show the world that the United States and Israel are on the same side against these enemies. And as we translate it into real actions, and I hope that the administration will be forthcoming and that they, they'll be able to reach an understanding, that will send a very positive message. All of a sudden, yesterday, uh, the news explodes with Bibi's desire to now form a unity government. What would be the advantage, especially at this time, to go ahead and do so? Well, one is because he's had some internal fights. He's threatened uh, members of his coalition that he would replace them. Uh, because he doesn't like some of the comments and criticism, I guess. Second, it sends a positive message to the world. It says that, look, we have no differences on the issues of the security, the threats against Israel, the time when they have the external dangers and internal uh, uh, actions and, and threats, that there has to be a united front. And the truth is that, by and large, Herzog's comments have been very strong and supportive even of the government, both on the Iran issue and on the need to face uh, the, the security challenges. There have been other differences. Yeah, that's true. By the way, I think you had pointed out during the election that that may, that may have cost him the way he was in agreement with Netanyahu on some of those issues. It may I have don't think that it necessarily cost him. I think that, you know, whatever issues arise within the Labor Party, uh, but I think right now the people of Israel want to see unity. They don't want another election. They don't want to have to go through this process. They think that there has to be, uh, you know, some stability in order to face these challenges. So the Israeli government reaction to all this violence will be the same whether there's a unity government or not, you believe. It's not like it's not like the prime minister can accomplish can accomplish it better or stronger if there is a unity government or not. Well, I think the message of a unity government that it, it uh, stops those who attempt to divide and play the parties off against one another. We know that that even coalition members criticize the government. Right. So what's the difference if it's the opposition? <laughs> That's or true. Members of the coalition, <laughs> the result is the same. They always do it. And but this is really a time when Israel needs to to come together and to to face this challenge. 
this is a big burden. I mean, defense, you think this little country, and you think of all of the incredible expenditures that it needs to defend its borders, defend its cities, defend its citizens, to, to pr- promote its interests. And yet, at the same time, the economy is still booming compared to everybody else. It's, it, uh, you, you travel around the country, you see the amazing discoveries, you see the high-tech and, and water sufficiency, the model that it's become for the world. And unity has always proven to be the, the prerequisite, the one precondition that is yeah. essential for success. So I and nothing unifies like terror. And, and the, uh, yes, and that is a shame that we have to be brought yeah. together because of the outside threats. But I think the, the talk of unity government, and, uh, and right now it was turned down, um, it, you know, is an important uh, message. Um, it, it, so much has happened in the last two weeks regarding Russia and Syria. It's almost unfair for me to put it this way, but we have limited time, obviously. Has it now been set up, and again, excuse the simple way of describing this, essentially, Assad has an ally in Russia who's willing to go to bat for him against ISIS. Is this essentially the commitment that Russia is making to Syria? That is one of the commitments Russia is making. I think that Putin has multiple agendas. One that people don't think about is that there are over 2,000 uh, Chechens fighting with ISIS in Syria mm. who will come back and pose a, a credible threat to him. Uh, by the end of this decade, 40% of Russia's military will right. be Muslim. Right. Uh, so he has an agenda there to eliminate those people. Second, he has big interest with their base in Latakia. It is the only forward base outside the former Soviet Union of uh, of, uh, of, of uh, Russia. He has sent a message, and it, you're seeing the, the uh, reverberations in some of the Muslim world where they're saying, listen, at least Putin is a man of his world. He stands up for it, that he plays off the weakness of the West. Um, he is pursuing his agenda and, and bombing and shooting missiles a thousand uh, miles away into, into, the, um, into the, the areas of Syria and unfortunately not going after ISIS alone, but even going after the uh, rebel forces. And we are seeing many changes there. The U.S. has ruled out military cooperation with the Russians as long as they target non-ISIS rebels and others who the United States and and some of the Arabs are supporting. And you see the Saudi Arabians and others are talking about stepping up their activities, the Qataris, uh, against uh, the Russians and the Russian-backed forces. Uh, you see that the Russians are targeting Mosul and Raqqa, where you do have ISIS presence, but that is not the, the major uh, target. And the question will, ha- will be, what will happen when you start having Russian body bags coming out of there? How will the right. people in Russia react to it at a time when the economic conditions are terrible? It means that he has to draw troops down from the Ukraine in order to go there. Uh, he, he has, uh, it's a major commitment uh, on his part, but he is sending the message that he's a leader and that he's, you know, standing up for what he believes, and he believes that the stability that is in his interest and has united him with with Iran, with whom he has vast differences and and many more differences than commonalities, uh, drives him together in the support of, of sustaining Assad in power. Does Israel mind that that relationship exists? I'm sure they're wary of it, but do they mind that Assad, that, excuse me, that Putin is taking this type of commitment to Assad so seriously? Look, n- nobody knows what really is good anymore because you have so many forces, and if you remember 
<clears throat> many years ago when this started, I said that people, you have to look at the war in, in Syria as an onion, and you can peel off layer after layer, that right. it's Sunni Shiite, it's, it's uh, Kurds versus uh, uh, Turkey and versus Iran and versus uh, the Alawites versus everybody that... Christians. I mean, you have so many levels. Pl- of plus, now ISIS being represented by hundreds of different ethnic groups, and and uh, their presence. And by the way, getting stronger in southern Syria near the Israeli border, openly operating near the border. They have about five to six hundred people uh, in, in near the Israeli border. The um, and and the FSA, the Free Syrian Army in the area, hasn't received new weapons in three months. They get paid $70 a month. The ISIS gets $500 a month, and Al-Nusra about 300 a month. Where do you think guys are going to go? Right. And the, the, uh, the message that keeps being sent is that the West doesn't stick to the red lines. The U.S. and, and the its European allies and the others are so tolerant that the, the uh, violations by Russia, by others, keeps getting uh, overlooked. And if you remember the Soleimani visit that we talked about, which was a violation of the sanctions against Iran, he's the head of the Quds forces in Iran, that was where they laid out with the Russians the, the predicates for this. They, they brought maps, they brought all sorts of detailed um, plans, and enlisted and showed uh, um, uh, Putin what could be done. Um, and now he's gone beyond just having the air force and bringing very sophisticated fighter planes there, but he also has troops protecting his base, and they will become targets for the the rebels who will respond to to the Russian attack. So you're going to have an escalation uh, more and more of of the danger there. And of course, Israel is put in a difficult position because if they see the movement of weapons, and we know that the most modern weapons coming into Syria from Iran, paid for by Iran, Russian weapons, are making their way to Hezbollah, and Israel has to stop it. What happens uh, when they have to be in a confrontation or potential confrontation with Russian forces right. in there? So the word du jour that has come out of all of this <laughs> is deconflict. And I'm sure you've heard it, yeah. you know, which means that you try to avoid confrontations between the different parties who are there who are not interested in and who don't have anything against each other but are all protecting their various interests in the in, in Syria. You know, for those of us who are believers and have been, you know, taught for many, many decades the way things are, quote-unquote, as time marches on toward the, you know, t- toward the ultimate goal, let's put it that way, uh, it, it's, it's, it's easier to understand. That you're, you're dealing with, you're dealing not just in Israel with people who are, you know, randomly, you know, coming out of the woodwork to, to attack Jews, but you're dealing with countries now that are supporting terror, you know, without a specific address, so to speak, uh, where groups can pop up in any country and strengthen themselves and, you know, become violent and, and terror-filled, you know, at the drop of a hat. You, you just never know it. You know, this whole global, uh, and I don't want to paint, you know, such a horrible picture, but, but the, the global um, conflict situation that has always been envisioned in Jewish history is really playing itself out in front of our very eyes. Yeah, but you can't figure out who's Gog and who's Mog, who's going to be, who yeah. going to be which side of this thing. That's true. And you have many factors. I mean, obviously, we're not going to go into it, but the migration issue has such broad implications for what the future of Europe will, will be. What 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 happens with the dispersal of huge populations? 
the infiltration, what happens to the 30,000 or 25,000 ISIS fighters who are being trained as killers ultimately? What happens? Do the Kurds create a state? What happens with the alliances now, the permanent presence of Russia? Russia's selling weapons now to the Egyptians, to the Saudis. They don't want Russia there. They, don't, they think it's a godless country. They still think of them as communists. They threw them out of all these countries. But they're bringing it back. So the West has to show that they are leaders, that they are determined, that they're going to take the actions that are necessary. The Iran deal in that sense, and that the, the perception that America gave in and the West gave in to, right. the, to the demands of the Iranians further undermines any confidence. All right, three quick things, and I know there's a million things to discuss. We'll reconvene next week. Uh, three quick things. Can we get honorary ambassadorships for John Bon Jovi and Jerry Seinfeld? I think that people should make sure to thank them, to write them letters to the, all of those who, who uh, come to Israel and who perform there. There were uh, other concerts during Sukkot by um, uh, other well-known uh, entertainers. I, I don't remember their names because I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you're not, you're not they're very well-known, I know, because everybody was saying, wow, they also, a, a, a reminder about how some of the media is responding to all this, and this is more of a general thing, but you know there's a, there's a headline in a Rick Gladstone New York Times article that was posted yesterday by the Times that reads, Historical Certainty Proves Elusive at Jerusalem's Holiest Place. Yes, I saw that. And, uh, and the answer is that they found oil shale, a very big deposit in the Golan, so <laughs> we're creating other realities. Yeah, but that's the, true. You know, this attempt, and that's why I take so seriously what Abbas is doing about the claims on the Temple Mount, denying the Jewish, the Judeo-Christian ties, but certainly Jewish history, Jewish connection, is a deliberate campaign. It is to send a message to the world, and when the world is silent in the face of it, and they talk now about only the... the um, Harmel Shalrif, the, the, uh, the dropping the term even Temple Mount, referring it to it as the as the sacred place of the Muslims and holy to Jews as well, when in fact that is obviously uh, uh, the reverse situation. I I can't dismiss those things when when they occur. These are are really important statements, and they they're trying to rewrite history. This is the revisionism taking place. When every shovel in the ground, everything I saw in Yerushalayim at Ir David, the amazing discoveries which are not yet public, open to the public, the, the tunnels, every day new things that they are discovering. Yeah. I mean, these are so amazing. And, and they refute all of these attempts to deny the connection. And I apologize for rushing, but finally, uh, if this continues, and God forbid it should, if it continues, everyone has to think very carefully about trying to make a trip to Israel. You said it earlier, we must keep the corridor between the uh, diaspora and Israel active, especially during this time. Absolutely. It is more important. It is a time like this when people, if you're planning a winter vacation, believe me, you get more out of this than going to Florida or going to other places. Don't, the security situation in 99% of the country, and I believe it will quiet down in, in, in the areas that, that have seen some of the assaults. I believe that this is, from all the reports I get, diminishing. Um, but even if not, it's safe to visit Israel. People have to go and it, you know, you, you walk in the streets of New York and you can have something happen to you, too. Yeah. But the, the, you're absolutely right. The message it has to be to the people of Israel that were with them, the, to the victims of terror, to the families, to the people of, of, of uh, Israel. They look to us at a time like this. 
just as we look to them all the time you know, for our security and, and protecting Jewish interests. The Pasuk says, Netzach Yisrael lo yishaker, uh, the eternity of the Jewish people will not lie. More liberally, I might add, on a day like today, the destiny of the Jewish people will not be altered, and we have to remember that. Uh, Malcolm will reconvene next week. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Uh, there he is, Malcolm Honline, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us for the weekly update each Friday at 7.40 Eastern Time here at JMNAM. And as the Prime Minister of Israel said, as the Prime Minister of Israel said, the days when the Jewish people remained passive in the face of genocidal enemies, those days are over.